What can a teacher learn while working in a classroom in North Korea? Suki Kim will be here to talk about her memoir, Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite. You know, when I look at North Korean news now, I cringe because I think of my kids that I left behind. What makes certain topics taboo subjects for writers? Megan Dom takes that on in her new collection, The Unspeakable. We go through so much of our lives having feelings that we really don't feel we can express. And, and actually, the more I started to think about it, I thought, well, you know, I think a lot of people probably feel these things. My colleagues, Carl Sagal and John Williams, will join me with notes from the publishing world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Suki Kim joins us now. She is the author of Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite. Hi, Suki. Hello. Um, And I'm going to just make a little excuse for Suki. She has laryngitis um, and yet is bravely going forth talking with us today. So um, hopefully her voice will hold out, at least for the interview. So this is a memoir about a year that you spent teaching in North Korea? Six months. Six months. When did you go to North Korea and what were you teaching? Um, That happened in 2011. I'd been um, going to North Korea since 2002. I did a piece for New York Review of Books and then again for Harper's in 2008. And then I found out about this private university that was being built. And I uh, found a way of, because I realized when I was, um, when I visited in the past, there's no way of covering North Korea in any meaningful way unless you are embedded there, because you're just going to end up selling the government's propaganda otherwise. It is so absolutely controlled. So this school gave a way to be embedded. So in 2011, I went, which coincided with Kim Jong-il's last um, six months of his life. My last day in North Korea was the day his death was announced to the world. What's this university, and how was it that, assuming you're an American citizen, able to go and work there? The university is called the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. It's a long-term project by evangelical Christians who had built a similar school, sister school, in China and had great success. They made a sort of an unofficial deal with the North Korean government to be allowed in there as long as they were to build, fund, operate the school. North Korea does not pay a dime for this. Basically, to educate the uh, elite children. Not children, they're young men. It's a university. And, and only men can go to university? Men. No, everyone can. But this school is a male, all-male boarding school. The school was reputed to have cost about $35 million to build and far more to operate. But... One deal they made was to not proselytize. So generally they don't. I mean, what they are there for is a long-term goal. And when was the school founded? school was founded at the end of 2010. I was there in 2011. So who goes to the school? You mentioned it's young men. How old are they? Where, what's their background? And, and what are they planning to get out of this? They are young men selected. You don't really apply to school in North Korea. You know, you are assigned they were just sort of handpicked. What's fascinating is 2011 was Kim Jong-il's last year. But this, at the same time, it was the year Juche 100. North Korea counts their calendar according to the birth of their original great leader, Kim Il-sung, who died in 1994. So it was year 100 
not 2011, that year. To celebrate that, they closed all the universities and sent all the university students all across the country into construction field to build a powerful and prosperous nation. It's like the Cultural Revolution in China, but Absolutely. industrialized version. It's interesting because at the same time around the world, the Arab Spring was happening. You know, it's it's a way of controlling youth to uh, make sure they don't congregate, you know, in school. But everybody else was in the construction field except 270 young men selected from the best schools in Pyongyang and put into this private university as if they were waiting out a political storm. It's the school, as you said, of science and technology. But what does that mean um, in North Korea where there's such limited access to technology? My students did not know the existence of the Internet. Did you tell them? No, you're not allowed. The rule was there was an extensive rule when I got in there. And basically, you weren't allowed to do anything except teaching. Was it hard to kind of constantly edit yourself to sort of pretend that this outside world didn't exist? Absolutely. But there, it's life and death. But that's a part of going into North Korea. I think it's a really a difficult thing to fathom from our world. But, you know, the control is just so everywhere. From the minute you walk into North Korea, any visitor has to hand in phone cell phone and passport, all of that, you know, minder takes you around. So you almost get just, you know, into thrown into a system where you're controlled. And I think fear is something that creeps up on you very fast. Your body instinct knows when you're not supposed to do these things. So we just didn't. You're coming from Manhattan in New York City, um, and you moved to North Korea in 2011 as a teacher. What was your daily life like? Um, did you live at the school? How did you? How much time did you spend teaching? What were your days like? Oh, everybody lived on campus, students and the teachers. Nobody was allowed out. Teachers were only allowed out on group outings with minders. Our hours were all mapped out. Students wake up at 5.30, and they do all these great leader classes, exercises, chanting the reunification of motherland. They sing, um, you know, without you, there is no us. That's actually straight from a song they used to sing all the time. What does that refer to? Without you, the great leader, there is no us. And they basically don't have any free time. They're never alone. They're all paired up into a like, body system. Basically, everybody watches everyone. My classes were all recorded, reported on. What are they afraid of? I mean, it's such a closed system. What are they afraid that students might do? Well, they don't want any access to the outside world, and which is why we don't have any inside information from North Korea. We have information through defector testimonies once they fled North Korea. Or we have this, you know, snippets of journalistic assignment portraits, which is all government-sponsored. So we don't really have any inside portrait exactly for that reason, because they don't want any, basically, I mean, this is a system built on fear and, and um, distrust. And in order to maintain the myth of the great leader, which is basically all nonsense and bogus, it's a way of controlling people with just a bunch of lies from this maniacally, you know, narcissistic man that they just basically keep their people infantilized and ignorant. Were you able to talk among, you know, yourselves with the other teachers and sort of in a free way? No, because the other teachers were also, uh, you know, they were not allowed to proselytize, which means they couldn't really be Christian that they are. You know, they were very, very uh, fundamental Christians. And so they were not really ever, because um, all the rooms were bugged and stuff. So they, so they didn't, 
you know, they would say J instead of Jesus, M instead of minister. You know, there's just no way you're free. I mean, you're never free even when you're alone because your stuff can be searched, your room is bugged. And the sense of never being alone, also especially for a writer, it's exhausting. And also when you're alone, you're also going over the day that you spend talking to people because you also eat with students three times a day. What are the students like? Lovely. Incredibly lovely. I fell in love with them all. Um, and you live in such a close proximity, you do, uh, I think, in general. But what was so heartbreaking, I realized why that love was even possibly more heartbreaking, was there was such a duality to their existence. They were so innocent. They were 19, but they felt like they could have been seven because they had no idea about the rest of the world. They thought kimchi was the best food in the world, hailed, envied around the world. You know, they'd never heard of Eiffel Tower, Taj Mahal. At the same time, they were incredibly sophisticated, too. You know, these were the creme de la creme of North Korea. They lied all the time for no reason. Give an example of, of the kind of lie. They would just, for example, say, I saw them doing group exercises for the, on one of many great leader duties. But then they would tell me that they slept really late and they're really well rested, obviously, to protect their system. Then they would just lie for no reason, you know, sometimes cause we had assigned seatings at meals because sometimes, you know, you didn't really do that. But the North Korean staff did not want us to sit with the same student over and over because they didn't want us to get close to them. So it's usually me and three students eating every meal and so having a conversation. It was dictated today you're going to be sitting with this person, Not dictated, this person. but tried to at least have a schedule so you mm-hmm. rotate. But then sometimes a student would be switched when I got there. And then I would ask, so where is, you know, what happened? You know, and then they'll say, oh, he went to get a haircut. And the other woman would say, oh, actually, he's sick. But it would just happen so instantly, the lie, so to cover up for their friend. And then I would say, so what happened? Like, is it, did you, is he sick or did he get a haircut? And they would say, he's sick, but he went to get a haircut. You know, like the lie came so easily and there was kind of no reason for that. And I realized there were different tiers of lie, you know, like some were to protect their system because they were always had to lie for their system. Another is because their lies were so, in a way, rampant, sometimes just became a habit. What was really heartbreaking, I realized, was how can you be so innocent and yet um, corrupt? How can you be so honest? Because they were really honest. But they were also, you know, liars. Like you were 19 and 20, just lovely age. And the incredible humanity of them was in such a contrast to their most inhuman system. And I think that conflict made that paradox. And that took a while for me to realize. But when it began to sink in more and more, it just was really heartbreaking to be with them. Is the school English language, the entire school? Yes. It's only, and I wasn't allowed to speak Korean to them. So how is their English? Excellent. Because they're also so regimented that they really study very, very hard because they, they just kind of have to. Why are they learning English? I mean, you, you could, I could see them learning Chinese. What, what is a sort of official reason for them to learn English? And do they, the students have an honest desire to learn it? Or was this just something that they were expected to do? They were expected to do. I think it's the government's decision, but more the school's Christian educators, they call themselves, have really been proactive in reaching out to offer to set up this school for free. And it's another propaganda for North Korea because they have this incredibly nice-looking school that they can present to the world. 
you know, they're very good at propaganda. So, for example, BBC would go in there for five days and come out and say, wow, North Korea has this really great school with really healthy looking students, none of which is true, is true for the rest of 25 million North Koreans. And yet, at the same time, they get their elites educated for free. So it's a win-win situation. What did they think of you and what did they think of America? It was always, you know, the paradox. For example, they would say things like, there was a song that they, you know, they always marched like a soldier in a unit, um, hailing songs about the great leader. And one of them was in a single hurried breath. And I said, wow, because I heard in Korean and I, I said, oh, I, I, you know, because I'm fluent in Korean. So I said, oh, I hear this song in hurried single breath. And they said, yeah, that's the literal meaning. But, you know, there's a loaded meaning to it. And I said, what does that mean? And they said, Oh, it means in a single breath it will kill every American and every South Korean if a war to break out. And I looked at them and I said, I'm South Korean and I'm American. And they all like started laughing. And later they said, well, you're our teacher, so you're different. So it's like there was the um, propaganda that has constantly their education that told them to kill American. And yet there was this adorable side that, you know, the adoration was mutual. On a human level, you know, or just complete separation. You mentioned earlier that you've been traveling to North Korea regularly since 2002. Did you notice a big change in that decade, near decade of, of traveling to North Korea? Um, physically, I think there was a change in that the first time I went came right after um, their worst famine, which killed about a tenth of the population. So I think that uh, as the island as North Korea is, it's really they've got nothing. Electricity got cut every day in that rich school I was teaching in 2011. Back in 2002, though, I mean, the airport didn't even have light or toilet paper. It's just literally nothing. Um, so it's not like that now. But I think that's just uh, physically you, you, you seeing, you know, I think at the time, because I went in after famine, and this is not after famine, but... The control level-wise, I've interviewed every defectors, and I've now lived with the elite. I don't see on that level anything different. Did you accomplish your mission in the sense that did you feel like finally being there for six months, being in this uh, very particular milieu that you got insight into North Korea that you hadn't been able to get on your previous visits? Yes, I do feel um, the book was worth it. I protected my students. They come across very loyal to the regime anyway, but you know their identities all blurred, so nobody can be singled out. Did you feel yourself uh, like you were in danger being there? While I was there, yes. yes, absolutely every moment, because I was taking notes. And did your fellow teachers know that you were presumably not? No, they didn't know. No, there was no way they would have allowed me to be there if they knew. And I can understand why they're angry about that, but. You know, there's no way of uh, writing about North Korea without being embedded. And that's the essence of undercover journalism. The school had claimed that now North Korean government found out they're missionaries. I mean, that is a laughable claim because they're very well-known missionaries in the region. And they came with that condition to not proselytize. So, um, you know, that's just North Korea being incredibly angry, obviously, with this book and the school delivering that message to me. So as far as the book's mission is concerned, I am satisfied in that 
I really felt with a portrait of North Korea was lacking is we're just not getting any human portrait. We don't see them as people. We see them as this famished people or nuclear weapon, you know, country and this great leader, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un jokes, which I find very tiring and boring. But we don't ever see them as like you and me. You know, when I look at North Korean news now, I cringe because I think of my kids that are left behind. I think that association is important because, you know, it's like 9-11. When 3,000 people died, all our heart broke because they were real people to us. We have 25 million people in a gulag in North Korea. And if we don't see them as human beings you and I can relate to, then I don't think that reality rings true in any way. And my goal in this book was to deliver that human story somehow. And for you, I mean, it must be so difficult. There's no way for you to stay in touch with these students, presumably. It's a very sad thing. But at the same time, it would be really disingenuous of me to claim I'm their mother. I'm not. I went in with the purpose of writing a book. The minute they became my subject, then I think the relationship does change on some level. They're in my heart, you know. And I think in the book, you can see how much I love them. Really, really, really love them. And I think about them and I have those sections in the book where I just wish that they forgot everything that they had, you know, maybe they had thought about the world through me a little. And I wish they would just go with their regime and become the soldier of that regime and just become the leader. I don't want them to bring in freedom to North Korea or do any of that stuff and just be safe, stay safe, have a long, healthy life. That's really what I would want. But they are my subject in the book, and I think they remain in the book. Were there any signs there that the situation might be changing? Did it feel like it was sort of like a end of regime, or did, was it just so all-encompassing and entrenched that you couldn't kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel? I did not see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see how the light at the end of the tunnel could change unless this, this regime falls. I think people mistakenly think it's the great leader dying. We saw Kim Jong-il dying, and that didn't change anything. It goes straight to the next great leader. It's because North Korea is also run by a military henchman who basically are ruthless, that they would exploit the system of the great leader, which is more like a cult religion, really, this idolatry, which is really disturbing. Every room in North Korea has a portrait of the great leader or the slogan of the great leader. Every building has also the same thing. Um, There is no blank space. Every citizen of North Korea wears a great leader badge. You are marked for life by your great leader. Who you belong is very clear. So I think this military dictatorship, that brutal, brutal dictatorship, there's a public execution there um, still. There's 20 gulags with 200,000 people in it. Just now the UN has declared them, uh, referring them to the International Criminal Court as the worst human rights violation in the world. So for this country with this strong military dictatorship and this brainwashing three generations of the great leader system intact, which means they are controlling people's soul on top of you know everything else, communication, they can't travel within the country. Next town, go to from Brooklyn to Manhattan, you need a travel pass. Nobody can move around. Presumably you're not going to get into North Korea again anytime soon. What What is it like for you now that you've been devoted to this subject on and off at least for 11 years 11 years what are you what are you going to do next I mean I would like to take a break my first book was a novel so I have a novel draft that I have to revise so I think that I would like to go back to that because of my background having born and raised in South Korea and having covered North Korea now I think the theme would go back to that 
So um, I would do journalism for that. But I think for next book, I would like to return to fiction. All right. It's a rare glimpse in what seems like a fictional world, but obviously is all too real. The book again is Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite. And it's a memoir by Suki Kim. Suki, thank you so much. Thank you. My colleagues, Paul Sagal and John Williams, join me now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Pamela. Hello, John. Hi, Pamela. So uh, last night, the three of us were at a party, um, and I left early. So to quote the title of a great Roz Chast collection, tell me about the party after I left. Well, it was a lovely occasion. It was uh, in an effort to sort of draw attention to second books, which are, you know, harder to sort of market and publicize. Slate and the Whiting Foundation teamed up to, it was a kind of a, not really like an award, but they chose five outstanding second novels. Um, the judges included Yu Yoon Lee and Colson Whitehead. And the books were Akhil Sharma's Family Life, which was on our top 10. Uh, Marlon James's The Book of Night Women, Eileen Miles's Inferno, Helen DeWitt's Lightning Rods, and Daniel Alarcon's At Night We Walk in Circles. So I realize this was about celebrating second novels. Um, we should be honest here and confess that we were all three a little bit disappointed <laughs> that there wasn't a winner, uh, that they were all winners and there was no judgment. It, they didn't narrow it down to one, which which was at first disappointing, but it was kind of nice. Once they introduced all the authors, it was kind of nice that they all got to share the spotlight and yeah. not, you know, none of them had to go home feeling badly. Yeah. And everybody was there, which is like a yeah, lovely everyone, thing to meet all the authors. Akhil Sharma and... was in the Midwest somewhere, but the other four authors were in attendance. Yeah. And it was appropriately the night after the Center for Fiction's award uh, for first fiction. Yeah, which is not obviously, you know, to Slate and the Whiting Foundation's point is is not the only award out there for first novels. Mm-hmm. And they tend to get a lot of love. So it was nice. And, and these were taken, like Marlon James has a new novel out recently that got a lot of attention. But this was his second novel from a couple of years ago. So this was from, I think, the past five years. Yeah. They were, t- they were considering books from that time span. Yeah. The conversation was interesting at the party. Dan Coyce made a point about how much easier it is to sort of market a first novel. Like how every debut is kind of sexy and you get love from the hometown paper and it's easy to sort of, you know, put a lot of hopes on this writer and on this book. And second novels tend to sort of be quieter affairs. Sometimes you're dogged by the poor sales of the first one. So Dan Coyce, the books editor of Slate. Slate, yeah. Well, next year we'll have to honor the third and the fourth novel. (laughs) (laughs) And crown only one. There is other news going on this week that's not all parties, despite the holiday season. Um, John, tell us about the new book coming out from the Brooklyn publisher, Melville House. Yeah, this is the opposite of a party in spirit. Um, Melville House is going to publish the uh, the recently released summary of the CIA's uh, detention and interrogation program, uh, which is a public document. And so they don't have to pay in advance. They can just it's available to the public for free. So they're going to rush it out in time for the end of the year. They're they're aiming for an on sale date of December 30th. So it's a very fast turnaround in the book publishing world. And I don't want to say just in time for your holiday shopping. Right. Exactly. To ring in the new year. Um so it's a it's about 480 pages and 
it is it's obviously not the full 6000 page report which i don't think anyone would cart home um but you know they see this as a public service they were melville house does a lot of literary books now and interesting fiction but they also and sort of started as a politically minded um publisher in the events uh, after september 11th to kind of focus on poetry that was written in the wake of that event. There's a tradition of this kind of thing, too. Public Affairs made its name when it was starting out by publishing the full copy of the Star that's Report, right, which went right. on to become a bestseller. Yeah, And Norton, in 2004, published and distributed the 9-11 Commission Report, which ended up as a bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle in nonfiction. And, and I think someone turned that into a graphic novel, even, at some point. So yeah. that got a lot of play in the publishing world. Yeah. Um, and, and for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but our colleague Alexander Alter, who reported on this this week, um, says that unlike other publishers who got a little bit of help offsetting the costs of publishing these things from the government, uh, Melville House is not receiving that kind of support. They are not eager to, perhaps. uh, Probably not eager to advertise this one. All right. Well, we've done it for them here. Thanks, John. Thanks, Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Pamela. Megan Dom joins me now from Los Angeles. She is the author of a new collection of essays, The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. Hi, Megan. Hi, Pamela. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Um, So this collection has been getting a lot of attention. Um, Let's start with the title, Why Unspeakable? The title is The Unspeakable, and I actually... I don't know that I even came up with it myself. It might have been a kind of collaborative effort between myself and my and my editor. Initially, the book kind of came together based on the first essay, which is a pretty brutal piece uh, about my mother dying and, and the process of taking care of her. We had a pretty fraught relationship, and she had had a really fraught relationship with her mother. In the midst of that experience, it occurred to me that there are so many things about caregiving, especially in a in a life or death situation that are culturally imposed. We're supposed to have certain feelings, we're supposed to have certain epiphanies and grand moments, and we make these demands on the dying as well as the people who are caring for the dying. And if you can't kind of comport with those ideas, you end up having a lot of feelings that you really can't say out loud, even to people who are very close to you. So so that was kind of the the, the impetus for the sort of overall concept of the book, which is that we go through so much of our lives having feelings that we really don't feel we can express. And and actually, the more I started to think about it, I thought, well, you know, I think a lot of people probably feel these things. So the unspeakable, it has to do with with a lot of things. It manifests on a lot of levels. But um, one of them has to do with just not sort of not not getting with the program, not feeling appropriate, like as you're, it were. Like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing or feeling what you're supposed to be yeah, doing. Yeah, you're not, not, not you know, you're not uh, having a, as good or as bad a time as you're supposed to have. Um, it's interesting that you start with that particular subject because it's been addressed in a number of books recently. This year, of course, there was Roz Chast's book, um, Can't mm-hmm. We Talk About Something More Pleasant, this whole theme of dying parents, but you title your essay uh, Matricide. There was really this sort of creepy and and disconcerting trifecta. My grandmother died at 91 the day, the the week that my own mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and my mother ended up dying about 11 months later at the age of 67. And then I ended up getting a freak illness and almost dying less than a year after my own mother had died. So in addition to talking about these issues around death, there were also a lot of 
questions and, and things I was going through regarding um, having children myself. It wasn't something I ever really wanted to do, and I had recently gotten married, and, and I was wrestling with the, with the issue more intensely. And so, so not only does it have to do with these people in my life dying, but also just the idea of being a mother and putting to rest um, the idea that, that I would ever be a mother. Um, and that was very much by choice, but, but it's still, it, it is a loss in a lot of ways. So matricide, it, I'm using it in a broader sense. In the essay, um, you refer to what you call a morbid trifecta, three generations of women in one family, each of them almost physically repelled by the one before, wiped out in less than two years' time. What was your relationship with your mother like? Well, it's complicated. We all have complicated relationships with our parents. And I think the thing with my mother is that she was very different with different people. Um, She had been affected, and I guess I wouldn't hesitate to say damaged, by her own mother in such a way that that she really, it was kind of hard to, to pin her down. Um, she was kind of one person with me and, and with the family and a different person with friends and, and a different person with colleagues, and she had students who certainly adored her. So the piece is very much about my particular experience with her, and, and that was one of just sort of not being able to, to figure out who she was. And I think of all the unspeakable truths in the book, and particularly in that essay, the one that is most upsetting and and most brutal in a way is this idea that my mother, who was so, so sort of haunted and dogged by her own mother, did not get to live one day as a healthy person and be free of her mother. Her mother died, and immediately my mother got sick and was dying. And that was such a horrifying thought. And it had even occurred to me before I got sick and then certainly after that, that maybe I was going to be subject to the same fate. Um, I was sort of, quote unquote, free of my mother. And I don't say that glibly. Obviously, I was sad and she's my mother and I loved her. And, and there was a great deal of, of grief there. But I don't think I'm the only one to say there's also some relief on certain levels when a parent dies. And so the idea that, that I would then die so shortly after after my own mother, just as she had died so shortly after her mother. That was the, the morbid trifecta, and it's something that, that I still think about to this day. It's like, wow, I can't believe I, I survived. I was somehow spared. Is that why you bookended it with the essay Diary of a Coma? Yeah. Um, yeah, the book is very much framed by these two pieces. So Diary of a Coma takes the medical records from when I had this really serious freak illness that had me put in a medically induced coma for about five days. Um, So I got the medical records and kind of went through them and and used that as a framework for this piece. And and it was a strange thing because I was, it was a horrifying and terrifying experience for the people around me, but it was kind of like no skin off my nose. I, I was really sick and what felt like the worst flu in the world. And then five days later, I was groggily waking up and being told that I'd almost died and that the doctors had said that if I didn't die, I was quite possibly going to have brain damage. The process of coming out of that and recovering brought up a lot of these same issues. I had people coming to me and saying, well, what have you learned from this? Do you feel more passionately about life? Are you going to be a better person? Whatever. And and a lot of that stuff, it was hard to take and I didn't know what to do with it, but I also recognized it because it was 
similar to the demands I had been putting on on my own mother and and on the two of us as we went through the experience. Like, you know, surely something profound should come out of this experience. And when it doesn't, you feel like a failure and you feel like you're letting people down. You you sort of alluded to this when we talked about the title, The Unspeakable. It sounds like a lot of these essays, a running theme is sort of expectations and defying expectations and feeling okay with not conforming to those expectations, whether it's being a mother or not being a mother, being a foodie uh, or not being a foodie, um, being like a lesbian but not being a lesbian, and is that okay? Is that was that conscious, or did that emerge as you put the essays together? I think that it was a little bit of both. I mean, one of the nice things about this book to me is that the essays were written very much for the book to be in the company of each other. They weren't written for any magazines and sort of, you know, recalibrated or expanded um, for the purposes of a book. They're, they're very much organic to this project. So I think a theme kind of naturally emerged. But, you know, one of the things that I've always been interested in my, in, in my writing and in my life is this idea of the redemption narrative. I think our culture is so wedded to this idea that people should come through a crisis or a trauma uh, learning something or or changing somehow, um, and you see this all the time in the news, and you just see this in terms of how people think about their lives. And, and it occurred to me that that's really artificial in a way. Why should why should we be a different person? Why should the measure of of recovery be in how much we've changed? Isn't it enough to be the same person? I mean, it seems to me that that going through a terrible illness where you could have had brain damage or died and then come out the same person, no better, no worse, is the ultimate good outcome. So so a lot of these pieces have to do with that, yes. I mean, it's very, it's very high-low. There are these issues around death, and then there are also lighter pieces like you know what, actually, I'm not going to learn how to cook. I'm not going to learn how to appreciate artisanal uh, pickles. And um, that's just the way it is. And and that can actually be quite liberating, I think. It's this midlife reconciliation with the sort of you that you think, you know, you ideally might be and the you that you actually are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the culture is is very fixated on this idea that that somehow we can always improve that that, we're, that it's always a process and you know that's true in some ways but but I think that um it might be a measure of sort of personal integrity and sort of mental cohesion that that we stay the same sometimes it's interesting too because two of the most um successful narratives by women in recent years have been exactly that kind of redemption narrative wild by cheryl strade and eat pray love by elizabeth gilbert were you thinking about those and sort of reacting against them in, in a way oh i wasn't reacting against them i mean those are both wonderful books and it makes perfect sense that they would resonate with people i guess I really want to sort of look honestly and and often sort of ruthlessly at the way that our true selves interact with these fantasy versions of ourselves. I am all for thinking about all the different ways that we can be and and you know I have an, an active uh, fantasy life as to what who, what and who my ideal self could be. But I think you know for me what's in, most interesting in writing is is kind of turning that on its head and, and, and looking at, at how things really are and in a way that's humorous and in a way that is sort of intellectually inquiring. I mean, I, and I again, I'm not um, telling my reader to be any one way or the other. I mean, my job as an essayist, I think, is to invite my reader to think alongside me as I, as I sort things out. 
I just want them to enjoy the book and and find it funny and 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 hopefully moving and and all the things that the reading experience should be. You write a column for the LA Times. Um, how is that different? Is that your space for trying to persuade people or to make an argument? Or what's the relationship between the columns you wrote uh, you write in the newspaper and the essays that you write here? Well, the columns I write in the newspaper have to be seven hundred and thirty words. I think that's part of the. The, the blessing and the burden of, of still writing for print. There's a very specific space that has to be filled and it, it can't go over. You know, a lot of the reason I wanted to do this project is that I wanted to write some longer pieces and be able to really stretch out and, and not be um, restricted by, by word count. The principle is very much the same. I mean, I, as a columnist, you know, I certainly have my political and philosophical leanings and I, I'm pretty consistent in certain ways, but, but I really don't want to have my readers think that I'm trying to talk them anything or into anything or convince them of anything. It's very much a process of, hey, let's think about this. I see the column as a suggestion or, or an invitation to look at something this way or just kind of stay with me for a little while as I, as I sort this through. And I see the essays um, in this book as sort of just longer more complicated kind of macro versions of, of the column. This is your fourth book. Um, your first book was also an essay collection, My Misspent Youth. When you look back at that collection and, and this collection, where do you see that you've sort of come from that first collection uh, to this one? And, and what are the differences between the two? Well, My Misspent Youth, a lot of those essays were written for other publications. And so they kind of bear the, the marks of of various different magazines and magazine editors that had sort of initially published them. There, there were pieces from GQ, from, from there were a couple of pieces from The New Yorker, um, Harper's. So for this book, like I said, the, they were very much written to be in a book. So I was able to write them knowing that I wasn't going to have to to comport with a certain magazine's demands. I think that the the tone is really similar. I, I have been asked if I think my writing style has changed over the years. I mean, obviously, the pieces in my misspent youth were written in my 20s. The pieces in The Unspeakable were written, you know, over the last couple of years, my late 30s, early 40s. So the concerns are a little bit different, but I think the basic preoccupations are, are pretty consistent, and I think um, my style is got pretty dug in um, in my early to mid-20s, and so I think that I I sound pretty much like the same writer. Generalizations are such a tricky thing, especially generalizations about generations. But I'm going to throw this out there anyway, which is that it seemed um, for many of us in your generation, Generation X, um, Mm -hmm. that you sort of, you captured something about um, this generation in its 20s, um, and that now you're really kind of voicing a lot of what this generation is experiencing in uh, in our 40s. And I wonder if you feel like that these things are specific to this time and place, or if these essays could have just as easily come from, you know, a baby boom voice, or I don't know, from the next generation. You know, it's so funny, because, I, you know, I never said, oh, I'm in it. When I wrote my misspent youth, I never thought, oh, these are I'm the voice of Generation X. I think that those kind of labels get imposed, you know, when people are writing about the book. And But I do think that our Generation X, for, for what it's worth, isn't kind of a an interesting and weird spot because we're not a very big cohort. I think there are like half as many of us as there are of baby boomers and there are 
a lot more millennials, the kids of the baby boomers, than there are of us. So we're kind of like this little generation, this little cohort sandwiched between these two really big and, and culturally sort of loud cohorts. Because of that, there are issues that don't get explored as much. So it's I mean, I'm in my, I guess I'm in my mid-40s now. I'm 44. So I certainly do not think of myself as middle-aged, but at the same time, we're not really young. So so what would you call that? And I, and I don't think that's something anybody's really kind of defined before. Or is it the twilight of youth? You know, I, I've had readers both agree with me that being in the 40s is not middle-aged, and then I've had some readers, like, really sort of try to school me and say, like, you know, you're, you're in denial. What, what are you thinking? So... The Generation X people actually have a lot more in common with the baby boomers in some ways than the millennials because we came of age before the digital era. You know, we went to school without computers. We used selectric typewriters, and we know a time before cell phones. And that really has shaped our sensibility in such a way that I think that in a lot of ways we're sort of wired cognitively more like older folks than, than younger ones. Well, um, I will characterize you as, as youngish, old, or oldish young, um, and uh, and despite yourself, perhaps uh, certainly an essayist who's capturing a lot of what the current generation X um, is going through. So, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and for this collection. Thank you, Pamela. The uh, the book again is the unspeakable and other subjects of discussion by Megan Dom. Greg Coles joins me now with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new this week? The news on the bestseller list this week is that there is no news on the bestseller list. You know, sometimes uh, we cruise on over to the children's bestseller lists to see what's new on there. Guess what? What? There's nothing new on the children's bestseller list this week. And uh, on the adult bestseller list, there are only two new titles, one each on fiction and nonfiction On the fiction side of things, the new title is the second Tom Clancy title this year, even though Tom Clancy died last year. His frequent collaborator, Mark Greeney, has continued to write Tom Clancy books under Tom Clancy's name since Tom Clancy's death last year. Uh, And so new on the hardcover fiction list this week at number five, we have Tom Clancy, colon, Full Force and Effect by Mark Greeney. That is uh, the first Jack Ryan book um, that Tom Clancy did not have a hand in. It's the first Tom Clancy book since last December. But um, Clancy's other series character, Dom Caruso, uh, did appear in another Mark Greeny book earlier this year called Support and Defend, which hit the list back in July. I would just look quickly at the um, hardcover fiction list. Um, It is uncharacteristically a very macho list this week. At uh, the top of the list, we still have James Patterson with Hope to Die. Uh, Just below him is John Grisham with Grey Mountain, then David Baldacci, The Escape, Stephen King's Revival, then this Tom Clancy book. So a very thriller, manly list at the top of the list. This right. Week. You you didn't even talk about Anthony Doerr and then Michael Connolly before we get to Jody Pico and That's true. Patricia well, Cornwell. Anthony Doerr um, has found a big audience. You know, I'm not saying that women don't read thrillers. And certainly I know that um, Stephen King has a lot of women 
fans, but Anthony Doerr probably even more so. That, that's a book that's found a real life with book groups. That, you know, it's not exclusively a macho book uh, to the extent that some of these other ones are. But it's true, you have to go all the way down to number eight before you find a book that's actually written by a woman on this week's list, and that is Jodi Pico's Leaving Time. On the nonfiction side, it looks like it's all either comedy or death. <laughs> <laughs> or, or both, because what's not funny about death? Yeah, it's, it's true. There's a lot of um, comedy and a lot of death. But it's not all comedy and death. The one new title on the list this week, in fact, is pop music. Down All the way down at number 15, the British author Hunter Davies, who hung out with the Beatles back in the day, he was their only official biographer, their only authorized biographer back when they were still together as a group, um, and who has made a real career out of following the Beatles, has a new book called The Beatles Lyrics. Uh, he tells some of the stories behind the writing of the songs. He's also done something interesting um, kind of as an archival effort. He He went and tracked down as many of the original handwritten drafts of the songs as he could find, and he's gathered them into the into this book. They're not all the original drafts. He's also found some handwritten drafts that were written after the fact, well, decades after the fact. But uh, everywhere that he could, he's, he's found the real kind of the scribbles, the back of the envelope, um, jottings and cross-outs and false starts that um, show the evolution of, of these songs that are really the enduring rock and roll standards from the Beatles. That book, The Beatles Lyrics, is new at number 15 on the hardcover nonfiction list. It's the only new book this week in nonfiction. And what's the holiday season without a new Beatles book? <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.